Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. Race is on, and Max Verstappen won again in Monaco, but he had to work hard for it, given the threat posed by Fernando Alonso. But was there a way for Aston Martin to have won this race? And what does Sergio Perez's disastrous weekend mean for the World Championship battle? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and more are Scott Mitchell-Malm and Mark Hughes. Well, Mark, I'll say hello to you, because I've said hello to you several times this weekend. We're in an echoey room at the moment, so how's Monaco been for you? Yeah, it's been great, you know, apart from... Um, Ollie, Ollie, sitting next to you for hours on end, but yeah, it's been good. Yeah, I, I don't like sitting on myself for hours on end at the best of times, so bad to impose it on other people. I've had a very nice weekend apart from the, the very angry and unhelpful uh, Monaco police directing traffic and just making you do laps of going out of Monaco and then eventually letting you go where you can I go. I think they were rivaled um, by the um, Monegasque um, caterers uh, just th- this evening who didn't want us to queue. Well, you were leading a mob, weren't you? I was, yeah. yeah. I wasn't having it. <laughs> it was a good moment where, where Mark was told just to wait, and he was just standing there, and he just said, well, I'm waiting. It was very ang- very odd and angry, very odd and angry, but uh, there we go. But those are just very minor quibbles. Monaco Grand Prix is always a great weekend. How's it been for you, Mon- uh, How's it been for you, Scott? Your name's Scott, not Monaco. <laughs> <laughs> this is an interesting one. Um, yeah, no, it's been um, it's been interesting watching it. I'm um, not, not on, on site. I think it's the, obviously, nobody made it to... Imola. Well, I made it to Imola. I just uh, had to turn around and come back home a few hours later. This is my first event of the season that I've uh, worked worked remotely, not not been on site for. Um, I have to admit, it gave me a good opportunity to appreciate the uh, um, smattering of new camera angles and uh, efforts that went into the slightly new look Monaco TV coverage now that uh, F1 is sharing that with the locals instead of it being an independent production as it has been for for so long um so that was really cool i have to admit get, getting a bit of a break from the um the nonsense that the two of you were describing just now is uh, one of the reasons why i didn't really fancy going to, <laughs> to monaco i was happy to miss it uh this year but i have to say watching it um watching it from afar again it's a i think this weekend was a great example of what what it should be on on, on the calendar as well as uh the things about it that still need to be improved and, and the things that don't quite work for, for modern F1. But, you know, there's the, there's no... I don't think there's as tense a place for qualifying as there is Monaco. That was fantastic. I were f- following that from, from afar. And, and and even the Grand Prix, like as, as long as you've got e- evenly matched cars on slightly different strategies, it is capable of producing fascinating racing. And there's always the potential for a little bit of a... Of a, of a rain shower to spice things up. So I, I enjoyed it following it from here. Yeah, it's such a phenomenal track, such a challenge. And there was a great reminder of that, not just from watching the cars this weekend, but one evening, because obviously the, the circuit's open at night, I had to drive around a bit of it to get to where I was going. And you just sort of sit there in your Fiat Tipo hire car thinking, yeah, barreling along here at some amazing speed, just takes tremendous precision. So it's a great feat of, of driving here from pretty much everyone. So let's get into it, Scott. Given the rain that started to get serious after about 50 laps, Max Verstappen was leading, Fernando Alonso was second. But was it 
a surprise to see Aston Martin fit slicks rather than intermediates. And is there any way you think that Aston Martin could have played this better to perhaps even nab a win? Well, it was a surprise to me because um, I know everybody has their own kind of views in these situations. I, I can only view it from the small amount of experience I have covering Formula One and just the slightly irrelevant but only reference I've got of amateur racing, which is that when you get changeable conditions, I think I it, it, that kind of changeable condition once it reaches a certain point, I'd rather I'd like to get on get off the slick tire as as soon as possible. So it just that that felt like the no brainer move for me. So I, so I was surprised to see that they went for for the slicks it was so so close if not past the point of of a crossover i felt like alonso was completely safe in second to the point of could probably undo that change to intermediates if he needed to but i felt the chances of that were really really slim because i felt that everyone would be going on to intermediates and it was just a great chance to base essentially box opposite to Verstappen who 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 was obviously carrying on for uh, had obviously carried on for at least one more lap so i was surprised to see them put um put slicks on it's it's been explained away relatively well the 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 logic makes a lot more sense when you realize two factors one aston noticed that the temperature in alonso's tires the the the, the old hards that he'd been using up until that point were, were were dropping and were therefore a performance and i guess safety risk as much as anything else could have could have slid off the road but the second factor is the most important one which is that they didn't think it would rain that much or for that long so they kind of thought okay we can ride this out with a better tire than what we were on just now and he was keeping it on the road and then so there'll be a few laps of management but then we'll be able to to really get stuck into it. Um, and this will be the tyre we take to, to the end of the Grand Prix. But it took about 30 seconds for them to realise once he came out of the pits that that was the, the wrong decision. Um, had he gone on to intermediates, would he have, would he have won the race? Potentially. I, I'm not as convinced as I was uh, initially that... There's a there's a good argument to be made that Alonso would have taken and then seriously close to the to the to the full gap that Verstappen had um, in just one lap on Inters versus Verstappen's in lap on on the slicks. But it's not a like for like comparison because Verstappen's in lap, which is the only reference we've got for it, was much more cautious because they knew that Alonso was out on slick still and have to be coming in for Inters anyway. So there, there, there was no rush for Verstappen to get back. I, I feel my gut feeling is that he probably would have rejoined marginally ahead of Alonso and therefore we'd still have had the same result but I think it would have potentially been closer and he would and he would have had the opportunity because the pressure would then have been on Verstappen to get back to the pits as quickly as possible on the slicks so I think the better chance to win was to go on to the intermediates but they had their reasons for not doing that. Mark you've been speaking to Red Bull and crunching the numbers do you think there was any chance with a one lap undercut on intermediates he could have jumped him? Um, I think it, it, it's unlikely um, for the reason Scott's just talked about but um i do get the logic in terms of aston every every choice aston's made this weekend has been a very aggressive one um from the way it, it, it attacked qualifying to the to its tire choice for the race um they it's almost like they weren't interested in being safe a safe second they felt that they you know they, they could do that relatively easily they felt this is their one, maybe their best chance of the season to nick a victory. And that to 
get onto the slicks and hope that the rain stopped quickly enough that they saved a whole pit stop of Verstappen was uh, a theoretical route to that victory. And so they went for it because they, they had a big enough gap of a third place that, as Scott said, they could, if it didn't work, they could just come back in and, and correct that without losing position, which is, in fact, exactly what they did. So, no, I, I completely get it, even though the conditions, if you just uh, looked at the conditions and the situation without the perspective of the the, the season and, uh, and Aston's uh, ambitions, you would say, no, the logical thing to do is to, to go on in. It's, it's, it's raining quite heavily and the risk of, uh, of going off if you go on slicks is quite high. Um, so, no, the logical racing thing to do would be to just get straight on to Inters. But they, they were in a very uh, feisty, aggressive frame of mind coming in, into this weekend because it was... As I say, uh, a real a real chance to uh, snatch a win off the dominant Red Bull team. I must admit, I was quite surprised when I spoke to Mike Crack, the Aston Martin team principal, after the race in the pit lane when they said that the medium seemed to be the logical move for the conditions. But it's only to give them a, a shot at a win if the weather had gone a, a different way anyway. So, yeah, a really good weekend for Aston Martin. You know, we're saying, well, did Aston Martin miss a chance to win? They finished second. They keep being on the podium. This amazing season keeps going on for them. And if they keep doing this, there will be a day when they get a win. Let's move on now to... This is normally the how the race was won section, but I'm going to call it the how pole was won because that was what basically gave Verstappen the position. Now, obviously, it was a thrilling pole position battle uh, with uh, Alonso on provisional pole and then Verstappen pipping him just at the end. So how did he do that, particularly that last sector reversal? Yeah, that, that, that was the key. That's where he really, really had to pull it out of the bag and did a fantastic job in doing so. Um, but the reason why he had to pull it out of the bag, why he was almost three tens down after two sectors, is all to do with the traits of the Red Bull, which we've talked about many times this season before, and how it treats its tyres. And we've seen on the race, the, the more conventional tracks up to this time, um, that the Red Bull's qualifying advantage is relatively small, not race advantage big. That remains so, but was even more the case uh, around Monaco because it, it, it's very, the circuit is very gentle on the tyres. So, and because the Red Bull is uh, conceived the way it is, it doesn't put heat very quickly into the front tyres. So that's always a tricky thing, especially with the traits of the C5 Pirellis this weekend. Because it meant that they were effectively a, a one-lap qualifying tyre. You couldn't do multiple lap runs on them. So you had to do basically... a the best way of doing it was to do a pretty hard outlap and the best way of doing it for every other car apart from the Red Bull was to do a pretty hard outlap and get straight into it. Um, but the Red Bull wouldn't bring the tyres up to full temperature doing that, so it required an extra preparation lap, an outlap plus a preparation lap, which meant that it had gone past the peak grip by the time it actually started its flying lap. And that was just... There was no getting around that. And so the way they had to do the lap was knowing that they would be significantly down on Alonso after the first two sectors. It was quite plain all weekend. But what was also plain all weekend was that the Aston was very poor in the final sector. Therefore, it was perfectly feasible, but very much a stretch for Verstappen to nick all that time 
back off them in the, in the final sector because they were weak there. And all he had to do really was do the tyre prep lap perfectly, do a good solid sector one and sector two, which he did, and then do that almighty Banzai sector three. And uh, he did that perfection. It was a very tricky pull position to access. It was in the car, but it was, wasn't easy to get. That was very, very difficult, and they did it perfectly. Yeah, to underscore that, I think it's very easy to say, oh, Max Verstappen, Red Bull, easy. I think that's most drivers would not have been on pole in that scenario. That was really, really outstanding for Verstappen. And to put it into context, 19 seconds for that last sector, he found about 0.16 from his first run in Q3 time. So that's a pretty big percentage gain to be found. And I think probably Alonso was a little bit surprised by just how much Verstappen pulled back. He maybe regrets not laying it on the line a tiny bit more at the end of the lap. But as you say, it was still uh, still tricky for uh, for Aston Martin, because there were various compromises there. But that was absolutely key, and that was what gave Verstappen the lead of the race early on, and then he was able to be a reasonable amount up the road when he got to that scenario we were talking about with the rain coming. Now, Scott, with Max Verstappen winning, we've got to ask about title rival Sergio Perez. Obviously, he won here last year. He'll have been hoping for something big. He is the man for street circuits, apparently. Instead, he ended up finishing 16th. So what did you make of his weekend? Um avoidably and very damagingly poor i think um he, you you could tell the 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 magnitude of for the, the the qualifying crash was uh, clearly not lost on him um i can't remember the last time we heard uh, a a front runner talk in in those terms with the way that um perez was sort of saying like you know i can't believe what i've just done and then obviously we had a little bit more of the slightly more usual. You know, I've let the team down. I'm going to have an impossible race, but you could, you could tell he, he he obviously knew the the significance of, of it. Um, so the damage was done in in qualifying. Um, it was going to take uh, a near miracle to achieve anything of note in the Grand Prix. Even getting into the points was always going to be a tall order. I remember in in the past when when. Um, when Verstappen crashed here in, 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 I think it was 18, wasn't it? In, in practice, misqualified and started at the back. Uh, I think he barely got into the points. So it was a real, real struggle to, to get inside the, the, the top 10. Even when you got the best car, that's just how it is. And the race was playing out in, um, in a very frustrating way uh, for him. And then, yeah, just just when you think the weekend couldn't get any worse, it, it, it did. It didn't just go from bad to worse. I think it went from worse to absolutely terrible yeah and Perez was very down on himself both after the race and after qualifying you could tell he was just kicking himself for what happened there and Mark as always we've got questions from the race members club they'll come up at the end of the podcast but we like to drop in a few earlier if they're relevant to something we're talking about so this is the right time to address this from Mike Meredith who asks does this signal the end for Perez's title challenge he was on the back foot because of his grid position but this was not a champion's drive was it 39 points now, the gap. Yeah, it's um, put a severe dent in it. And this was, he's had a real, considering the, um, the, 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 his strengths as a, as a driver, the first six races have been a really nice sequence of tracks for him to really capitalize on his strengths. And this, of course, he's, he's had some great races here in the past and won a year last year, of course. So this should have been one of the ones where he was able to take the fight to Max, um, just as he'd been doing. You know, he did it in Baku, he did it 
in a slightly different way, but in Miami also, Jeddah. So, yeah, it, it, we, we're, now, we're now off to more conventional tracks um, where you would expect Max to begin, begin, begin stretching his legs. So this, this was a really, really important one, I think, for Perez to nail, not necessarily win, but at least to score some heavy points at the to fight Max for, and um, it was incomprehensible, the error he made in, it's Q1, he's in a Red Bull, and why on earth would you be putting it on the edge, uh, you know, through Sandovot in Q1 when you're in a Red Bull, it, it, it's just absolutely incomprehensible. My, my interpretation of that crash in, in qualifying, um, which which I wrote about after it happened, was that was that it was kind of indicative of the, the difference between Verstappen and and Perez in that this was the place I mentioned it earlier Verstappen learned a hard lesson didn't he a few years ago that you really need to pace yourself in a place like Monaco you don't need to show everything in every single session but a driver like Verstappen with the ability that he has and the pace that he has he does have that luxury of just picking his moments to really unleash everything and I I just got the impression with the the fact that Perez was quite close in FP3 and then quite close on the first runs in Q3 it, I just felt like Perez was really, really having to take it to the limit to, to live with Verstappen. And, and as Mark was explaining there, there's a lot on the line this weekend, another good opportunity uh, for him. Um, and I think that's why I think he had to be at 100% the whole way through to have any chance of arriving at Q3 in a place to, to beat Verstappen. But just to... Um, I think that, I think Sunday, just just to add, you know, rub salt in, into the wound, it was almost like... Uh, I think he described it as the worst weekend he could remember, but it was that thing of like ev- everything that that could have gone wrong in his control and out of it did. It wasn't just you know he was slow or he made a mistake. He said everything obviously went back to that singular error in qualifying. He knows that he can't make any excuses beyond that. But then you've got the the tripping over of was it Magnussen's Hass in the race that he he ended up. He broke his front wing on and, and damaged that. So it's another setback, having already spent so long frustrated behind another car. And then I thought he was absolutely blameless and luckless with that Russell rejoin at Mirabeau. That that was just that was just insult to injury, wasn't it? Just to have a, a clash like that. So um, you you couldn't. I don't think from from Q one onwards, you could not have scripted a worse possible weekend for a supposed title challenger. It's, it's as simple as that. Yeah, and I must admit, really, you needed. The points to be reversed almost. You need Perez to be 39 points ahead. And then we'd be saying, well, is that enough of a cushion going into a bunch of races that should suit Verstappen? It's just the problem. When you're up against someone like Max Verstappen, you can't afford mistakes. And dropping it twice in Q1 in six races is going to really, really hurt you. And Perez knew that. He was the first to point that out after the race. You could still tell after the race that yesterday's mistake was really on his mind. It was really playing on it. The Magnuson one was a bit stupid, but. Yeah, it was it was the Saturday one that he seemed to be struggling to reconcile himself with. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable and works in a range of social and professional settings. 
Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Let's move on to the other podium finisher, Scott Alpine. Finally had something to be happy about. Esteban Ocon, third place. How impressed were you with his performance? Yeah, I'm uh, very impressed with with, with Ocon this weekend. Um, just one of those weekends in which um, we've seen it a few times from different drivers in, in Monaco, where um, a driver in a, one of the more upper midfield teams uh, has a, a good feeling. The car's competitive, and, and they grow in in, in confidence. And, and Ocon was um, almost the he was almost like the poster boy for that track evolution and the unpredictability of qualifying, and especially Q three, um, because obviously Alonso being in the mix, we kind of well, we all kind of thought that might happen, and the Ferraris as well. And then when Ocon was suddenly up there, it's just like, well, can't, you can't predict anything from from this. So, so the pure one lap pace was was very impressive. And there was that phase when he started run, when he was running in 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 the top three, um, having obviously benefited from Leclerc's grid penalty. Where okay, there's been one or two things that have boosted him into that position, that grid penalty, Perez's crash, but but Ocon wasn't in that top three place by luck he was there because of his raw speed on 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 Saturday and the fact that he kept it um all four wheels pointing the right way and out the barriers so couldn't begrudge him the fact that he was the person in a position to inherit third from Leclerc and then he did obviously a faultless job in in the dry which is I I guess it's kind of straightforward in an F1 in Monaco context but F1 in Monaco is never that easy so that in itself, keeping the train of faster cars behind him, not getting too carried away, not making any mistakes, not overworking his tyres, that was just a very measured, mature, controlled part of the Grand Prix. But I was really, really impressed with how he dealt with the changing conditions, the rainfall, then that stint at the end on, on Inters with Hamilton close behind. Again, if you don't make any mistakes in Monaco, you will hold that position, but that just makes it sound so much easier than it is. And I'm really, really impressed with how Ocon, how he's so composed and robust in those situations. I don't see Ocon as a particularly stunning defensive driver or or anything like that necessarily. Um, but one thing I think he's really, really good at is when he finds himself in those positions where it's completely on him and... Basically, the result is his if he doesn't make a mistake because overtaking is difficult or whatever. He's really, really, really robust. I don't think he makes silly mistakes in those situations. I'm thinking of his first win, of his win in Hungary, obviously, in 21. The driver in front of Hamilton again in Japan last year in those horrible wet conditions. And I think it, I think this was another example of it. So a, a display of one of Ocon's best strengths, I think, and a really fitting, deserved way to end a very, very good weekend. Yeah, and Pierre Gasly backed him up in seventh place. Gasly actually was a bit frustrated because he was uh, asking to 
be left out in case the rain came. And he felt if he'd not been called in for a couple of laps, he could have backed that up with a fourth place as well by not having to make two pit stops to go to a new set of slicks and then to the intermediates. But slightly trickier weekend for Gasly, struggling with a bit of rear locking. He said in qualifying, didn't quite get it together. But yeah, a solid one for Alpine. Mark, another question from the Race Members Club that's very pertinent here. This one's from Oscar Robledo, who asks, is the Alpine a Monaco-specific car or have they turned a corner? That's a very good question. And I think even Alpine isn't quite sure yet. But it came here with um, quite a good look and upgrade on the... Uh, the side pods and it's got new rear suspension so there's reason to be optimistic that this is uh, a genuine uh, you know uh, improvement in pace the, the, the Alpine's been a bit inconsistent but even even before this upgrade it, there, were, there were there have been little glimpses of form it, it, it's, it's sort of snapping at the heels of the, the Mercedes Ferrari you know at the tail end of that little group there from time to time, um, and maybe, but maybe now it can get in among it. That would be great to see if it could do that. Um, we'll get a proper read on that in Barcelona, you know, the, the more, more demanding track. Yeah, and uh, I asked Alan Pomain, the sporting director, about that inconsistency in the car and whether they've understood it. He did slightly push back on the impression of inconsistency because he felt they had reasonably consistent performance out of the car, but perhaps there's just a certain degree of execution, I don't know, that was making it difficult. But this is what Alpine needs to be doing. Obviously, there was some good fortune in terms of finishing third rather than, say, sixth or whatever. But even just little things like that strategy and qualifying, running him a little bit offset because he was on provisional pole with a couple of minutes to go. And they were probably rubbing their hands because a red flag or a yellow uh, would seemed inevitable quite frankly of course it it didn't come so uh clever little move from there lovely lap from Ocon as well he's uh we were admiring his lap this morning weren't we from the yeah it was beautifully economical and he's got lovely feel with the getting the rotation on the car and the brakes into the chicane and yeah it's one slight little error at the hairpin but you'd be quibbling to talk about that really um yeah it was a lovely lap and he, he really has got a, a lovely way with the car when he's um when he's on form yeah and a great weekend for him scott there was a bit of hope pre-weekend that Ferrari could be a threat for victory at Monaco. Really didn't come to pass. Charles Leclerc sixth, Carlos Sainz eighth. Bit of descent over the radio along the way as well. So did Ferrari underachieve? And what did you make of the way they went about the race? Yeah, I think Sainz has kind of accepted that he was probably a little bit too harsh over the radio, but he still wants to have a proper review because his issue is basically that strategy and why when he was on the when they were both on the the hard tires why he wasn't given the option to try and extend as long as possible because he felt that not only did he have have the pace to ward off uh, the threat of the the undercut from Hamilton which is what Ferrari was singularly focused on and that that's why they brought him in relatively early for for someone on the hards um he he obviously realizes in hindsight he probably would have been able to manage those tires up until the the crossover for Inters and and got a really good result out of it um i'm not um I, you'll be surprised to hear that strategically I'm not blown away by the choices that Ferrari made in this race. Um, first of all, I just think when you have two cars starting where they did and Fred Vasseur says that they knew before the race that they would need to do something bold to achieve anything, I don't understand why you put them on the same strategy. That that doesn't really seem to make much sense to 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 me. If you recognise that you need to risk something to get a big result, would it not make sense to one on the medium, one on the hard, just just in case? But that could be a fairly small thing. But it, but it's how they managed it after that. I mean, clearly Leclerc was 
was struggling by the time he pit. But by that time, you know, like I said, Sainz has already done an early pit stop. He doesn't use that tyre advantage because they're focused on covering Hamilton. So that's problematic. And then they make the decision to delay coming in for, for intermediates, which seems to have been done on the justification of, similar to Aston Martin, thinking that the the rain wouldn't be as intense or long in duration uh, as it was. Um, but they were running third and fourth as a result of, um, you know, staying out when others pit, but that very quickly became undone because signs spun at Mirabeau. They swapped positions as a result, but then when they pit and rejoin, they were they were sixth and eighth. So Leclerc did end up in the same place because um, he'd obviously uh, lost out to, to, to Russell, I think it was, but got one place back because of signs. But signs lost, I think, three positions versus where he was running originally. So it, it didn't work out. I don't. There's a bit of um, slightly strange glass half full at best logic from Vasseur claiming that it was a gamble and he's fine with the risk that they took because it didn't cost them anything. But every way I reflect on that race and that situation suggests to me that they did lose something as a result of it. So I'm not entirely sure I agree with that. I think it just adds to the picture. It's similar to last year. Okay, the Ferrari's not a championship challenging car at this stage of the season as it was last year, but they're still leaving points on the table. You still get to the end of the weekend. So you had a car that could have done better than that. And they just got a chunk fewer points than, than they need. So the execution still isn't there. And I think science's little outburst over the radio shows there's still some real underlying issues there with the way things work, especially remember Leclerc got that penalty for impeding, which was pretty flat footed from Ferrari impeding Norris in, in, qualifying so yeah there's, there's still just something that's not gelling yeah it's 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 true and i was just about to bring up that incident with leclerc with you know the engineers recounting the the the, the, the deficits where he needs to find time um when he should have been telling him about where the traffic was and uh, by the time he was informed it was it was too late so yeah it's, it's all part of the the same old communication problem that's um that's been at ferrari for a while and a questionable strategy comes under the same umbrella doesn't it and uh, it, it's, it's not i can't really see that it's changed since last year i think the only thing that's changed since last year is they have a less competitive car i think the operation side of it looks very very much like it did yeah definitely would agree with that it was a strange weekend across the board and obviously science had that little touch of the wall well little crash in uh, fp2 wasn't it he said that didn't affect his confidence but i don't know he didn't he looked pretty pretty confident up to that point and i don't know maybe there was just a little bit but it's just things are just not coming easily to ferrari i think that's the way to uh, uh to put it but let's move on now to mercedes because we saw the much vaunted mercedes upgrades mark fourth place for lewis hamilton fifth for george russell was the result doesn't mean a huge amount in the grand scheme of things but what are your early impressions of this new direction um slightly positive it seems to be a little bit the drivers are both saying it, it feels a little bit better it feels more stable under braking. Lewis says the front feels a bit nice. He says it's actually quite a nice car to drive around here. So that's positive. That's the first time I've heard Lewis say something like that this year. Um, it probably doesn't mean that much, given that this is a, a very untypical circuit. Um, but there's not. it hasn't introduced any new nasties to the car, and I think that's important. And so um, hopefully it's given them a good platform that they can develop, and we'll see where it's really at come Barcelona, you know, where they can start, you know, we can get a more accurate picture of where they're starting from with this upgrade. Um, it, 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 it looks 
quite different um, in, in the side pods and the front suspension. Um, and it's just, yeah, it, it looks a more conventional car now. And I think there's reason to be optimistic that they will make progress with it. But it, it, you, you're still talking about a car that's a significantly long way off the pace compared to, you know, to, to the team's aspirations. So I don't think it's going to transform this season. I think it's, it's going to inform them for next season. And it, this was always a starting point, wasn't it? A change of direction. This is something that they hope certainly next year will yield a, a bigger step, raising the performance potential once you move along that development path. I think the really positive thing is that, as well as the, the, the sort of gently optimistic response from the drivers, is the fact that this was a, subs, uh, was a substantial change. Sometimes there's talk about bigger upgrades and they're pretty minor or certainly visually they're pretty minor sometimes you can have things that are significant but you can't see so much but the yeah the side pod shape the front suspension you can clearly see the greater anti-dive the floor obviously has, has changed we've got a great look at the floor when lewis hamilton had his little crash in uh in fp3 which was great we saw the red bull floor as well when uh when perez crashed so i think that's quite positive for mercedes that at least it's not a, a kind of halfway house in terms of the direction they're going I guess the thing we have to stress, Scott, is it is a halfway house in terms of what they want to do because they're constrained by some of the architecture of the car that can't be changed this year. Yeah, so it's um it's a compromised version, I think, of what they, they would like this first go at this concept to be. Um ultimately if they if this is paraphrasing Andrew Shovelin, but if they were able to start this project with a blank sheet of paper the car would look different and and it would have different features on it but they're working with what they've got it's a first step towards it there will be bigger changes to come um probably some more changes this year i, I i'm sure i suspect they haven't spent their entire budget cap uh, or r&d budget within the budget cap um on on this upgrade alone but i think it will be the winter that we see bigger changes in a way it's um it's really reminiscent of what aston martin did last year in that you see like a big visual early change that hopefully signals the start of a new direction that goes well. Then a few more updates through the year to start to refine that and get a little bit more out of it, tease some more performance. But the steps are going to be a little bit more gradual until you can get to the winter and, and make wholesale changes. But I think that Aston Martin comparison does contain a warning for Mercedes in a way because, yes, Aston Martin made good progress over the course of last year, over several, several months. Uh, and yes, they've made another big step over the winter, but they are still trailing Red Bull and still not in a position to beat Red Bull in a straight fight. And I know that Mercedes aren't coming from as low a base as Aston Martin, but that is the timeline that you're looking at to really get on top of a new concept, then introduce bigger changes and then start to optimise it. So there is very much a long way to go. Yeah, because all the time Red Bull are developing, they're not troubleshooting, they're just working through things. They're not under any particular pressure in the championship. So they can really strategize how they're going to use their limited ATR, etc. So it just makes it much easier for Red Bull. But I think positive signs from Mercedes and of course with Aston Martin, they took that step last year. And then although this year's car is looks very different in many ways, it is still a big step down that, that same sort of development path. So I guess the one question you'd ask is uh, whether Mercedes were a bit late making that change given uh, Aston Martin had a similar 
problem <laughs> last year and, and changed it earlier, but it's very easy to say that uh, from the outside. We'll obviously get a much better picture of the Mercedes when they get to Spain, which is as good a test track probably as Monaco is a bad one. So won't have to wait too long to get a bit of an idea from that. Scott, we should prickly talk about McLaren. They came away with ninth and 10th place with Lando Norris and Oscar Piastri. Solid midfield haul or signs there's still a lot of work to do? Um, I think this track was always probably going to suit them a little bit better than somewhere like uh, Miami, which was obviously the very, the very worst of times. It was the darkest timeline for McLaren in many ways. Um, the performance here was a lot stronger from the from the start. Uh, it felt like in, it, it felt like there, there was maybe a little bit more to come um, up until uh, Q three, but uh, I think. I think after the start of the season that they've had and as I say how bad Miami was I think it was good just to kind of um almost reset and 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 get back to that baseline level which is that it's a marginal top 10 car and then both both drivers did a good job in the race I was really impressed with um Oscar Piastri's progression over the course of the the, the week he seemed to start on a bit of a poor poor base compared to 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 Norris obviously nowhere near his experience around Monaco especially in an F1 car um and then they both handled the conditions very very well to 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 bank that lower double points finish and Norris's pace in particular in that final final stint on the inters was um was really good so i think there're flashes of potential and and signs of um positivity but overall you know what Alpine and especially Aston Martin are doing continues to um rub McLaren's nose in it a little bit the fact that we're talking such lowly positions as a uh, positive result just puts the whole season into context doesn't it yeah and they're looking at Alpine on the podium and thinking hmm yeah that's quite a big step forward Lando Norris after the race wasn't especially delighted he was okay with where they finished what they've got but he was really focusing on the car pace it's just that's just where it is which is pretty difficult for them and of course they could have ended up with just one car in the points had Sonoda had uh, avoided that problem he had later because he was struggling with the brakes and then had the uh, the brief off. So yeah, hard work for McLaren, but at least rewarded with tick over of points, which shows how long away they have to go. But yeah, I also agree. Piastri had a a good weekend. He's having a a sort of low profile but but tidy rookie season at this stage, doing a good job. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first a word about our partner Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done.
Well, as always, we'll finish with a batch of questions from the Race Members Club. Head to therace.com and click on Join the Race to find out more about the benefits that extend beyond just being able to throw questions at us for this podcast. Mark, you're first up with this question from Anthony Velasquez, who says, do you read more into Hamilton's positivity about the upgrades than what's at face value? Um, no, and I don't think Lewis really um, means any more than he says on it. He's, he's, it it's quite, um, you know... He's not. He's not going for gold on it. He's not saying yes. This is definitely it. He's just saying it felt quite nice around here. It's the best it's felt to me all season. So yeah, it's it's a, a good first impression. But he's not saying this is it. We're on our way. Um, so I, th- I think what he's saying at face value is pretty much what he means. Yeah, he's certainly happy with the front end. He said after qualifying. I suspect that they're being a little bit cautious because this. Circuit could completely mislead them, so Spain's going to tell them a, a lot more. Scott, next question for you from Christopher Parrott, who says, is Lauren Rossi's public criticism of the team proving a masterstroke, or is the upturn in performance coincidental? Oh, it's purely coincidental. And uh, I actually said this um, earlier in the weekend, that I think there's a... Uh that that Ross is probably going to be feeling quite uh, quite smug about this, especially if Ocon does uh, get on the podium, um, because they've obviously had the they got both cars in the points, didn't they? In um, uh, in Miami, which was obviously twenty four hours after he put them on blast, and then they've come here and, and scored a podium. So it does look a little bit like you know correlation equaling causation, but that's just that's just not the case. It, it was clear for. It was clear to everybody that Alpine was underperforming and had a, a, had many better results in in the car than they were showing. Uh, it was just a case of tidying it up and and getting a, a you know a public sledging from your CEO isn't suddenly going to turn that car into a top three car. I feel like Alpine were already on top of areas that they needed to tidy up operationally. It's just a case of you know putting that into into practice. Um, I think we would have seen exactly the same step and result in Miami and here if Rossi had just kept, you know, his opinions behind closed doors and read them the right act in in private or not said anything at all. I I I find it very hard to believe that there's actually any combination there at all. That there certainly would have been a maybe a slight increased desire or motivation to prove him wrong and show that that you know everybody in that team is worthy of their position or, or whatever, but. I, I don't really think so. I, I suspect that it would have just played out exactly as it did. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. We should also note that Omar Safnauer, the team principal, said on Friday there's a few little organisational changes going on in the team. It seems it's not so much personnel side as just having a little bit of review of the structure and the who's responsible for what and making sure there's not areas of overlap and not areas where there's a gap. It's just sort of shuffling stuff around. So uh, that they feel like they're already doing things. Omar said that that was already in place before the uh, the Rossi stuff. A question I'll take now from Christopher Parrott again, who says, how much will the other teams seek to learn from photos of Perez's lofted car's underfloor? Well, they'll seek to learn everything. They will actually learn something. It's slightly tricky because it's very three-dimensional. That's very clear. Uh, it will certainly help. And I, every team will already have the, the photos of that, it's certainly in the aerodynamics department. So yeah, it's certainly not going to do them any harm to have a look at it. It was interesting, actually, uh, Andrew Shovlin at Mercedes said probably the two cars that got lifted, it was much worse for Red Bull from their perspective, so that everyone see their underfloor than it was for Mercedes. But yeah, a, an amusing little incident. The two cars that we most wanted to see the underside of probably this weekend were the two ones we got, including some 
brilliant pictures directly underneath uh, Hamilton's car as it was craned on uh, Saturday. Mark, another question on a similar topic from Stefan Smith, who says, when Sergio and Lewis's cars were hoisted up, the cars remained very horizontal. In the old days, I remember Marshall sitting on the nose of the car. Has the weight distribution changed a lot over the years? It has. And on those days that you're referring to, they were very rearward heavy, um, which is, you know, you'd imagine that to be the case. That's where the engine and gearbox is. Um, but as they um, got developed the cars to be lighter and lighter so they could move that weight distribution forward, they had as much as uh, 50% on the front axle. Um, and they were, you know, um, there was a period where you saw them being lifted up. They, they, would, they would be, you know, perf- almost perfectly balanced. Um, now they are, um, the, the weight distribution is regulated to within. I think it's three kilos either way, isn't it? Something like that. Um, so you, you you don't have much variation, and it's it's, uh, it's slightly rearward. So yeah, that's just how it is. I don't really like the weight distribution being mandated. They bought it when the Pirelli tires were coming in, so no one locked into something, and then they just said, "Oh, we'll stick with this." It's 2011, but anyway, I've uh, I've digressed there, well beyond the the range of the question. And Scott. Another question on a related topic from Urban Strenchan, who says, we saw some controversy regarding the lifting of Sergio Perez's Red Bull and Lewis Hamilton's Mercedes by the crane as the bottom of the cars was seen. Do you think there should be some rule to prevent that from happening in the future? No, no I don't think so. I, I, I like those moments because, first of all, things like Toto Wolff's reaction on Saturday, I think it's just quite funny um, because they just show the inherent paranoia of, you know, this part, the, the one part of the car that they can basically conceal and, and trust to not be able to be seen by rivals unless you're quite careless with, uh, you know, carrying a new floor through the paddock or in the garage if you need to change one mid-weekend or whatever. Um, suddenly it's on on full full display. I think you used the phrase in a in a, in a video script I looked at from you, Ed, where you described it in, in all its glorious detail, which is just a very nice, uh, nice way of putting it. Um, I think... Uh, Mercedes is probably a little bit more annoyed that um, more uh, more images of the Red Bull don't seem to be quite so uh, freely available. It seemed like every photographer got a great view of the Merc, but not necessarily the Red Bull. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how wide those photos were because there's, there's spy photographers around. I know of one team that 100% got the Red Bull because there uh, there was a snapper in the the, the right sort of place. So uh, yeah, very. Uh, uh, a very uh, interesting one. It's just a happenstance. But it's funny because Hamilton hit the wall and I think he wanted to recover back to the pits himself, but the nose was wedged in the barrier. And then, uh, yeah, he was desperately trying to get them to uh, to avoid it. I was like, whatever you do, don't do this. So, uh, yeah. And it also just adds a little bit of uh, an extra negative to Sergio Perez. The next question comes from Thomas Knight, which I'll take. says, in a race where track position is so critical, how poor was the lack of communication from Ferrari about Norris coming up behind Leclerc? In the race that just ends up costing a lot of time stuck behind Ocon and Hamilton in the first stint yeah we touched on this earlier and I I do think that in particular was extremely poor because if you watch the Norris onboard obviously you go into the tunnel it's the fastest part of the circuit it's curved so you're haven't got a great line of sight it's dark so there's a transition as you as you go in and you can see how Norris reacted it's like oh I mean he was pretty derisive Norris about Ferrari just in terms of like just don't it's not hard not to do that so it's just a we talked about communication earlier and I wonder it's not clearly about the race engineers they're not idiots they know what they need to do they can do it but if I was running that team I'd be saying right what what exactly what's the communication problem here that's making this happen you need to be focused 100% on that is he is the race engineer 
having to communicate with a data analysis performance engineer or something too much. So there's got to be some little streamlining going on there. But yeah, hugely costly, hugely dangerous uh, as well. That's what it was particularly problematic for. So yeah, just something Ferrari desperately, desperately needs to improve. And Mark, another question from Thomas Knights for you. Was there any particular reason for Ferrari's shocking pace on the intermediates? Really poor compared to the cars ahead and the McLarens on a track where they thought they would go well. Ended up being a woeful weekend. They were running... um pretty low, uh, which was why their behavior was bad over the bumps. And uh, that, that's, that's, that's something that you really don't want in wet conditions. It's, um, it, it was, it's not good under braking. Um, when, when, you know, when it's in that position. And, and basically, they were, they were being greedy with the ride height because that's the, the lower you can run it, if you can run it comfortably there, the more downfalls you're going to create. And basically, this car just hasn't got as much downforce relative to the competition anyways last year's car and so they were having to be a little bit more marginal with the way they were running it and um it's yeah it, it wasn't in a happy place uh, all weekend but it was particularly not good um in 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 the in the wet because then you know that the problem just spirals it affects your tire temperatures and then the tire temperatures affects the performance which you, you just get in this horrible spiral and yeah, interesting that you talked about the McLarens because they were absolutely flying in the wet. And um, yeah, both both Piastri and Norris were uh, fastest guys on the track for a brief period. Next one for you, Scott, from Dan Ingenowski. He says, will Lawrence Stroll, no, will Lance Stroll even, Lawrence Stroll's going to have a seat at the top of Aston Martin, whatever happens. Will Lance Stroll still have a seat if his poor performance compared to Alonso costs Aston Martin P2 in the championship? Lance qualified 1.2 seconds slower than Alonso this weekend. A well-read question there for me. It was much. It was much more coherent the way Danny put it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a uh, it's a difficult one for, for for Stroll and off the back of a Miami weekend in which he underperformed as well. It's really not good. Um, I think he does need to turn a corner um, very very quickly. He had a very good start to the season, especially in the context of that injury that he was carrying and made him miss preseason testing. Um, but that was at a time when Aston Martin was a lot more. Uh, and I'm not saying that Aston Martin has slipped in its position here. They were a lot more clear cut, the second best team, because Mercedes and Ferrari were a lot more messy. I think Merck's kind of tidied that up a little bit, but Ferrari maybe not so much. But the midfield teams were further away. We, we talked about um, we talked about Alpine obviously making that 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 step becoming a bit more um, consistent as they brought upgrades to to the car and. You know, McLaren and Alpha Tauri, for example, were were nowhere at the first race or two, and 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 they've made gains as well. So I think even when you're in a car like the Aston and Mercedes have seen it as well, if you do have an off weekend and you underperform by two, three tenths of a second or or, or more, in, in in this case, we've we've strolled quite a bit more, you are going to find yourself a lot further down the grid. And and I think. And I'm not saying that he was underachieving early in the year and got away with it, but but you would get away with it with the maybe the the, the gaps that we we saw sort of at the start of the season is kind of my point. And it's been a bit disappointing to see that Stroll hasn't gone with Alonso. Um, the car has been getting these little Im- improvements. Alonso's still scoring podiums. This was the best result yet for him and him and the team. And on that weekend, on that race, Stroll posts. Another stinker of a of a weekend. Whether there was something wrong with the car or engine or whatever to really explain it, 
hard to say, but this was really, really disappointing. And that key part of the question, you know, is his seat going to be in doubt? I'd be surprised short to medium term if it was, because I just think there would always be a case of making excuses for him and, and justifying keeping him around, especially if he does have more races like he did in the first four weekends than the last two. But long term, when you've got a partner like Honda coming on board and more and more money's been sunk into the project and the factory and t- new wind tunnel and simulator are all up and running and there aren't any excuses from a team point of view and you become more and more driver limited as they're finding themselves now in the Constructors' Championship, that that uh, that the, the nepotism-based argument of keeping your son in, in the team, it just it gets less and less easy for everybody else to stomach. So he needs to pull his finger out. Otherwise, there there will be a serious conversation. It will have to be had within the team. Yeah, it becomes much, much easier to see the effect when you're running up to or to the front. And in fairness, he was on a lap that would have got him through to Q3 in Q2 when he went deep at Raskas. And he did have a bit of damage on the underfloor from hitting some Norris debris. And that was a real reason because they were allowed to change the underfloor overnight and you have to prove there's there's external damage there to be able to do it. But uh, even so, he wasn't at Alonso's level. Anyway, the next question I will take comes from Philippe Esposito. He says, how worrisome was Sonoda's dissatisfaction with his brakes, especially given AlphaTauri's considerable problems last season? Well, it's obviously problematic for Sonoda, who's struggling with brakes throughout the race, and it was particularly tricky once it was wet. Obviously, he lost that points finish. He'd had a really, really good weekend, especially seeing as they had a slightly difficult Friday. And then those other problems, I don't think it's a, a hugely worrying problem in the grander scheme of things. They do have a few occasions at AlphaTauri where they struggle a bit with the brakes. Gasly had it a few times last year. So they maybe need to look at some of their warm-up processes and the way you prep the brakes. I don't know whether they're struggling with a bit of glazing here and there or what. I'm, I'm not sure. But yeah, I think the positive for Alpha Tauri is that their mechanical package is good and they're decent on tracks like this. Sonoda's driving well, but yeah, it all just fell apart relatively late on this time. Mark, you have mentioned this already, but JK asks just how impressive was the pace of both Norris and Piastri on the Inters phase to, in the Inters phase towards the end of the race? Was it just a case of the cars ahead not pushing very hard? No, it's an element of that for sure, but I think it was also that the car was just very good. In the, or the, or the, whether it's the car or the drivers or the, the, the combination of them being at ease with the traits of the car in those conditions, but it, it was, it was gen, they had no reason to be pushing hard. Be, they, they weren't going to catch uh, who was next in front of science. Um, that was just the natural pace they were running at, and um, I, th- I think it was... Uh, you, they could have they could have run at the front of the field at that pace. So, um, yeah, uh, it does. It doesn't really tell you anything. It, it can be that a car's just uh, happy happy in the wet. That it is not particularly quick in the dry. But um, I, I think they're both very very quick uh, wet weather drivers. We had a wet weather session in Melbourne earlier in the year, and Piastri was extremely quick in that. Um, and we've seen great performances in the wet from Norris, of course, in the past as well. Yeah, it does just reflect some uh, good driving performances as well. Scott, the final question goes to you from Oscar Robledo, who says, was one of the consequences of the increased minimum weight limit to beef up the suspensions, the number of kisses and brushes of the wall during qualifying in the race would have resulted in retirement in years gone by? (laughs) Uh, I don't don't think it's necessarily... um... I don't think it's uh, necessarily related to that. I remember asking um, 
Alpine technical director Matt Harmon last year um, if they'd uh, consciously made their car so robust because I remember last year the Alpine surviving quite a few big hits um, with uh, with certain things. The most notable example being Alonso's big uh, shunt at, at Austin where he went airborne, landed heavily and was able to continue. And um, Harmon's suggestion was that it was it was more when when you had a have a new new set of rules you maybe build a little bit of extra tolerance or robustness into the car just just in case and then you try and um lean it off as you uh, find other ways to get down to the um to, to the weight limit with without compromising the integrity um so my suspicion is just that these um all these kisses and brushes with the wall this weekend were just the type where they're not they're at the right angle or they're not necessarily hard enough in at the right angle um, to cause um, a big uh, a big problem. I suspect uh, a few cars were running with um, front or rear wheels with a little bit more toe in or toe out than they were meant to be <laughs> um, when, when they left the garage. But I, I, I think we actually see quite often that the cars can put up with, um, with, a, with a little bit of... Um, they they've got a bit of give and take in them. Let's 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 put it that way. And while put while nudging the barriers at Monaco is quite an aggressive way to uh, exemplify that. I think it just shows that the, these cars are fairly robust. They can put up with a fair bit. Yeah, exactly. And if anything, the new rules certainly last year would have almost mitigated against strength because they were trying to battle so hard to get down to the weight limit. You might have taken more risks and built in less margin. So yeah, I'd agree with you that it's just one of those things just a fluke of the way that you happen to uh, glance the walls there's of course an art in that on street circuits as any driver who gets away with it will uh will probably try and tell you well thanks very much scott and mark for your insight head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen plenty to read there both from the monaco grand prix and as we build up to the spanish grand prix check out our other podcasts including our tech show the race f1 tech show with gary anderson we'll be talking a lot about the mercedes upgrade in that so look out for that later this week and also have a look at our youtube channel lots of videos to watch there There's not much time to wait because the Spanish Grand Prix is coming up, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.